0: Welcome to Law & Crimes Daily Debrief everybody. Jail surveillance video from millionaire pedophile Jeffrey Epstein's first suicide attempt appears to be missing again and attorneys are demanding answers. Federal prosecutors are now admitting that the video from last July is gone forever. The government originally said the video was missing, then found, and now it's gone again, apparently for good. Epstein died weeks after his first suicide attempt, and the New York City medical examiner ruled his death a suicide. Epstein's cellmate, a former cop accused of quadruple murder, claims to have saved Epstein from successfully hanging himself on that first attempt. Attorney Bruce Barquette represents Epstein cellmate Nick Tartaglione and told Law & Crime earlier today his office emailed the jail immediately after the July incident, asking guards to preserve all surveillance video on file.
1: We wanted to be able to document uh, that our client didn't do anything wrong. He acted appropriately that evening and did exactly what we would hope somebody in his situation would do. Uh, We were told the videotape would be preserved when we asked for it. We were then told by the government that it was gone, that it wasn't preserved. Then we were told that it was preserved. And then we were told that it disappeared, that it wasn't preserved, and that the backup wasn't preserved. So we would like to have some explanation as to what happened. We're not all that concerned with Jeffrey Epstein. We don't represent him. We represent Nicholas Tartaglione, and we want to know what took place with respect to evidence that's relevant in his case. And the explanations so far have been inconsistent to say the least, and really no affidavits have been provided, no names have been provided. We'd like to know what took place, why this evidence that's important to us in our death penalty case was not preserved.
0: Attorney Barquette maintains his client was only helping Epstein and just wrote a note to the federal judge demanding to know who destroyed the suicide attempt video.
1: We want testimony from the witnesses that were responsible for the tape, uh, we want testimony from the individuals who should have preserved it. We want to know why, uh, according to the government, the wrong surveillance video was preserved because they didn't know which cell Epstein and Tartaglione were in. And we don't know, want to know why some testimony about why the backup system didn't work. Uh, I, we just don't know the answers to those questions.
0: Let's jump to California now for a big treat pre-trial evidence loss for accused millionaire killer Robert Durst. A judge has ruled that prosecutors in Durst's upcoming murder trial will be able to present evidence that Durst coerced his first wife, Kathy, to have an abortion. Kathy Durst, of course, disappeared in 1982. Robert Durst is accused of killing his friend, Susan Berman, because prosecutors theorize she helped cover up the murder of the wife. The state says the coerced abortion may have given Robert Durst motive for allegedly killing Kathy Durst. Prosecutors explained in court documents, as Kathy began to gain independence and neared graduation, Robert Durst began to lose some control. He responded with emotional abuse and increasing violence. The fact that defendant controlled Kathy by forcing her to get an abortion, coupled with the fact that his mental and physical abuse escalated as he began losing control, tends to prove defendant's motive to kill Kathy as well as his resulting actions after her death. The defendant discussed the abortion matter when he spoke to law enforcement in this recorded interview. And I'm going to just ask this straight out,
2: if you, if you had killed Kathy, would you tell me? No. Okay, I, you know what, I pretty, if you had killed Susan, would you tell me? No. All right. it, it, you, you know what, Bob, that is a very honest, it's a very honest answer. We're in law. Right. Period. No two ways about it. We were in love. That lasted about two years. Right. And then we had the thing with the abortion. Right. And that was the end of it. The thing that described your relationship best to me is you said basically when you first met, you guys would go out to dinner. And you'd go, and you'd go, you'd tell her, I'm gonna order this, why don't you order this, and, and we'll, we'll kind of share. Do you remember this? Yeah. And you said at the end, Kathy, be like, you get what you want, I'll get what I want, and leave my food alone. Is it, yeah. That was very descriptive of the relationship. In the beginning, we shared everything, and towards the end, we stopped sharing anything.
0: When wife Kathy disappeared, Robert Durst was having an affair with Prudence Farrow, sister to actress Mia Farrow and the inspiration for the Beatles song, Dear Prudence. During Durst's 2015 interview, the prosecutor asked if this affair could have been another possible motive in Kathy Durst's death. You guys got
2: into it because she had concerns Prudence did about you being married. And you said, yeah, that's true, right? Yes. And and then you told her it's not a problem she won't be around much longer. Oh, I do not not tell Prudence no. anything like that. Okay, okay. Um, and I got a question. If you had said that, would you tell me? Or no? If I had told Prudence, oh, don't worry about Kathy, she'll be gone soon. I, I, I would tell you, and I did not. Okay, so the, the, in fact, the quote was that she won't be around much longer. She'd be completely gone out of the picture within a week. So you're saying you did not say that? I did not say that.
0: Let's jump in with our experts for analysis on this case. Attorney Ashley McMahon is in Atlanta tonight with us. Attorney Linda Kenny-Bodden is in our New York newsroom. So Linda, what did you take away from the interrogations there? Is this just a cat and mouse game, or is there something of substance there that prosecutors can really use in this trial that's coming up very quickly?
3: If Prudence Farrow is on the witness list, Aaron, you know that she's coming in to say Robert Durst said exactly what he denied saying to John Lewin in that interrogation in New Orleans, that indeed he did say Kathy Durst would not be around longer. And if she's not, well, it goes before the jury anyhow.
0: Ashley, your take from what you heard right there.
4: I've got to agree with Linda. I don't see. It looks like Robert Durst just cannot help himself, one way or another. Anytime he talks to anyone in regards to this case, every time he opens his mouth, it's something you know that's a, a, more damning than the last thing that he said. Uh, and he it clearly just admitted, even if he did kill uh, Susan or Kathy, he wouldn't admit it uh, to the investigators. So you know, you've kind of got his whole attitude towards the case right there in a nutshell.
0: Oh certainly, certainly. Let's jump in with some more analysis now. Attorneys Joseph Marone and Chad Young are with me here in studio. So so Chad, we're hearing that prosecutors are trying to use some of this to get motive in here. This abortion attempt, maybe motive for getting rid of the wife. They don't even need to prove motive, but it certainly is helpful.
5: Well, of course, any time you can explain to a jury why someone wants to kill someone, their reasoning behind killing someone, it makes it easy for the jury to believe that they did it.
0: And Joseph, we've had so many hearings coming up to this case. The defense has lost hearing after hearing after hearing. And then we had that bizarre episode here. When was it, last week or the week before, where the defense basically turned around and said, oh, we admit that all of these statements in the film were uh, actually made. Why would the defense do that?
6: Well, I think the defense is trying to create a scenario where they're going to show the jury that they're really just being overwhelmed with evidence, but this evidence doesn't connect to anything that ultimately, even though it's movie, it's TV, it's not real. So that's the evidence you're hearing. The fact that you're showing a video, he doesn't admit to anything. He doesn't really confess. The fact that you're going to let evidence in that he coerced his his wife to have an abortion doesn't mean anything, and that's what they're going to try to sell to the jury. A non-confession confession, confession. they're going to turn around and say, well, you heard it in the film, but it doesn't really mean anything. That's right. That's how they're going to play it, because that's the only defense they really got, and it could work, and that's what they're going to run with. Chad, does it stack up that way in your opinion
0: as well?
5: Well, it's all they have. Um, He has said too many things to too many different people. Most of it's all been recorded. There's no way he can get out of it. So I think that's the best argument you're left with.
0: It's going to be a great case to watch when it goes to trial and the trial date is fastly approaching. A coalition of news organizations is using or urging rather the judge overseeing the Harvey Weinstein sex crimes trial not to allow jury section selection to happen in secret. Weinstein's defense asked the judge to move the questioning of the jury pool behind closed doors because the subject matter of the case requires sensitive questioning. An attorney representing ABC, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and other news organizations noted in a letter to the judge that Weinstein's attorney, Donna Rattuno, said on CNN that publicity would likely be helpful to Harvey Weinstein and that she cannot have things both ways. She can't have publicity and then secret jury selection. The prosecutor similarly responded that not one authority cited by the defense in its letter to close jury selection supports the defense request on the facts of this case. Jury selection in the Weinstein case has been as bumpy a ride as one might imagine. A male juror today said, I don't know the defendant directly, but I live across the street from the Tribeca Film Center and have seen him several times over the years. The juror then said he could not be impartial. So the judge wondered, because you've seen him across from the Tribeca Film Festival, the juror replied, on several occasions, I've seen him on the phone screaming at someone And that's how jury selection is rolling along in this case. Just a few of the questions. More analysis on this case. Let's jump back in here. Joseph Morone, when when you look at some of the questions and the answers in this case, it seems like New York is the smallest town on the planet. Everybody seems to know Harvey Weinstein when they're sitting in the jury box. You got to
6: remember, there are many, many jurors in this jury pool that they have kind of flushed through, and everyone has some idea or some information just to go to show how everyone has embraced this topic. So it's going to be very, very difficult for this court to find a fair and impartial jury not to already have a predisposed opinion.
0: Judge, should this case have been moved upstate or somewhere else? I know that that was the request. I know the judge denied it, but then we're watching the way this process is playing out, and it's been a bumpy ride.
5: Yeah, news coverage is nationwide, so I'm not sure that, you know, moving a couple of counties upstate would have helped the situation when everyone is watching the same news. And Joseph, uh, again, uh, do you think this case should have been moved upstate? Would it have helped this at all?
6: Well, I I think it should have been moved somewhere because obviously in New York City it's not helping but I almost think any place it goes within the state it's still going to be detrimental but if you go to a more conservative area of the state I think you have a better shot for this defendant to have a more fair and impartial jury to happen
0: that could be the case we're never going to know exactly though let's turn again to Linda Kenny Bodden and Ashley McMahon Ashley what do you think uh, is this just the way jury selection rolls out in many cases should we be surprised by the answers we're hearing
4: Aaron, I think Harvey Weinstein is already being tried in the court of public opinion and his defense counsel hasn't wasted any opportunity to discuss his case uh, in the media. And just like the judge said, you can't have it both ways, you know, either he, he's going to be convicted in the court of public opinion or he's going to be acquitted in the court of public opinion, whether whatever happens in the courtroom. So, you know, I think I think, look, you've got to let it go. You've got to let the news TEAMS IN THERE, AND YOU'VE GOT TO KEEP EVERYTHING OPEN AND ON THE UP AND UP.
0: Linda Kenny-Bodden, of course, you know, I have a vested interest in this. I think that it should be open, but I sit here as a journalist more so than as someone with a law license. What do you make of it here? Do you think that ultimately uh, the uh, complaints about Donna Rituno are correct complaints that she can't say on CNN that, well, you know, more publicity might actually help the case and then turn around and, and do something that basically shuts down publicity?
3: Well, and I've been in a lot of cases where we've had high-profile clients, and jury selection is always in the courtroom, always public. But in most of those cases, bar one, the jurors are taken up to the bench or they're not in the whole pool when they express an opinion that, you know, I can't be fair because he's a neighbor of mine or he's accused of sexually assaulting somebody I know. And that affects the whole pool, and we may get to the point that you don't even have a jury here because everybody is infected.
0: Okay, Linda, I'll ask you the same question I asked the gentleman here. Should this case have been moved?
3: Absolutely, it should have been moved to where there is not a big market. People may know Weinstein, but if you go way upstate near the Canada border, you won't find the kind of uh, publicity you're going to find here every day in the Daily News, the New York Post, the New York Times, and any paper in every media market we see.
0: Well, look, I mean, I grew up upstate and I've watched these cases move upstate and the publicity tends to surround them. But the jury pool of people who live across from the film festival are not part of the jury pool. So it might cure that situation, but not all of it. Great discussion on this case. Let's move on now. The Massachusetts teen convicted of encouraging her boyfriend who commit suicide will soon be released from prison. Massachusetts officials say Michelle Carter is due to be released January 23rd after a trouble free period of incarceration in the Bristol County jail in that state. Carter tried to argue that the First Amendment protected her speech when she texted her suicidal boyfriend Conrad Roy to finally take his own life. Carter waived her right to a jury trial. So it was a judge who issued this methodical conviction.
7: When Miss Carter realizes that Mr. Roy has exited the truck she instructs him to get back into the truck which she has reason to know is or is becoming a toxic environment inconsistent with human life she indicates that she can hear him coughing and she can hear the loud noise of the motor consequently this court has found that the commonwealth has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Ms. Carter's actions, and also her failure to act, where she had a self-created duty to Mr. Roy, since she had put him into that toxic environment, constituted each and all wanton and reckless conduct. Having reviewed the evidence and applied the law thereto, now finds you guilty on the indictment charging you with the involuntary manslaughter of the person Conrad Roy III.
0: And still ahead tonight here on The Debrief, a Florida family stabbed, shot, and bludgeoned. Was it a ritualistic killing or a financial crime? Plus, the man behind the zombie con shooting makes a surprising announcement in court. We break down those cases and more after the break. Now to a look at a case we'll be covering shortly here on the Law and Crime Network. Donald Hartung faces the possible death sentence in Florida if convicted on charges. He killed his mother and his two brothers. Police claimed Hartung committed ritualistic killings tied to witchcraft on a date set for a rare blue moon. Jury selection in that case is underway. We understand authorities are backing away from some of the ritualistic elements of the case. Opening statements expected either tomorrow or Thursday in that matter. A last minute plea deal for the man who refused to fight charges. He opened fire at the popular ZombieCon Festival in Fort Myers, Florida. Jose Bonilla pleaded no contest to second degree murder, aggravated battery, tampering with or fabricating evidence, and possession of a firearm by a delinquent. The deal will keep him behind prison walls for a minimum of 25 years on the murder charge, plus another 20 years on the aggravated battery charges, all served together. Bonilla's plea doesn't admit direct guilt, but it does admit prosecutors have enough evidence to convict him of opening fire on the October 2015 festival. He killed one victim, Expavius Terrell Taylor, age 20, and injured five others. That no contest plea legally functions as a guilty plea for purposes of a criminal case, and here is how it went down in court.
8: To those seven charges, how do you plead, sir? No contest. Do you understand that when you plead no contest that you waive your right to a trial by jury? Yes, sir and the right to appeal everything in this case except for the jurisdiction of the court and the legality of the sentence. Would I be able to come back on appeal? No, sir. I can't hear you. I understand.
9: Did Expavius Tyrell Taylor die because he was shot at ZombieCon? Oh,
8: yeah. Well, he died, yeah.
9: And you shot the gun? where the bullet killed Expavius Tyrell Taylor, correct?
4: to protect myself.
9: Did you shoot and injure five other people who you now know the names of David Perez, Kajami Baru, Kyle Roberts, Isaiah Knight, and Tyree Hunter?
1: I ain't know them, but they got hit.
0: The sister of the victim who did not survive that attack spoke at a sentencing hearing, which immediately followed that plea deal.
9: This is a picture from graduation. And where was he graduating from? Cluiston High School. About how long ago was this? He graduated in 2015. And what did he go on to do after he graduated from high school? He went on to ASA College in Miami to study for a mortician and play football. It was his bye week because they didn't have a game that week. So it was the bye week and he was home for that weekend. We just lost our grandmother October 8th she basically gave up. She had stage four cancer. She beat it the first time. It came back two years later and she didn't fight. He was a gentle giant. He didn't bother anybody. He just wanted to be successful.
0: Later, that sister said she was satisfied with the sentence. Here is the judge delivering it.
8: Mr. Bonilla, having accepted your plea of no contest, on count one, I sentence you to 30 years in the Department of Corrections with a 25-year minimum mandatory. Two through six, I sentence you to 20 years Department of Corrections under the 1020 life uh, statute. On count seven, I sentence you to 15 years Department of Corrections. All those counts run concurrent, which means at the same time. YOU'RE ENTITLED TO CREDIT TIME SERVED OF 687 DAYS.
0: AFTER COURT, PROSECUTORS GAVE US A GLIMPSE OF THE EVIDENCE THAT WOULD HAVE BEEN PRESENTED HAD THIS CASE GONE TO TRIAL AS SCHEDULED.
9: Benia, WHILE uh, INCARCERATED AT THE COLLIER COUNTY JAIL, BEGAN TALKING TO A FELLOW INMATE. THAT INMATE REPORTED THAT TO LAW ENFORCEMENT AND LAW ENFORCEMENT equipped the inmate with a recording device, and on two occasions, law enforcement was able to capture a recording of Bonilla speaking with this inmate, at which time it was the first time that law enforcement had confirmation that Bonilla, although he was a prime suspect at the time, it was the first time they had had confirmation that he actually was the shooter at the zombie con.
0: Let's jump in with analysis now. Ashley and Linda are back one final time tonight. So, Ashley, did anything strike you as odd with that plea colloquy?
4: I mean, the the way in which Mr. Bonilla was answering questions, it seemed like this was probably a last-minute decision, you know, just on the eve of trial that he has made. Uh, if I were his defense attorney, I would have tried to have talked him out of it. It doesn't really seem like he has a full grasp of the plea that he was entering uh, and almost a flippant attitude in in entering that plea. But one thing is for certain, he's going to have plenty of time behind bars to rethink that moment over and over again and whether or not that that was the right decision, Aaron.
0: Certainly, Linda, Kenny Bodden, it's hard to tell when we just listen to a clip like that exactly what's going on. Was Was this defendant not grasping it or were there some mental health issues there? And I can't tell for sure. I'm not there to see it.
3: Or he, or he didn't think he was guilty, Aaron. He said when the judge asked him, did you shoot and kill this person, he said, I had to protect myself, OK? Now, maybe since he's not entering a guilty plea, but a no contest plea, that will save this. But I see some enterprising attorney in the future after the appeal does happen that he's going to take, that he didn't have the mental capacity to understand that he was waiving everything because he thought he had to protect himself.
0: I'm worried about that as well in this case. So let's turn lastly to Joseph and Chad here in studio with me. Chad, uh, are are you buying what we're
5: thinking here? Are are you seeing this the same way? Yeah, I agree with our other guest. Uh, He was so unconfident of his plea. You know, he should know every detail of this plea. His attorney should have gone over every aspect of it, and he should have been ready for these questions, and he just was not, or he appeared not to be.
0: And Joseph, if you're sitting there prepping a defendant to go through something like this, you're telling them exactly what we're all thinking, I think, and that's, you know, you answer, this question this way. This is what the judge is going to ask you. This is how you answer it.
6: Yeah, I'm surprised that the judge even accepted this guilty plea because, listen, the defendant has to be emphatic. They ask you, Are, is, is this something you're doing knowingly, voluntarily? And he has to say, yes. You know, were you forced or coerced? He has to say, no, I wasn't. This is something I want to do. And the judge takes you through that because he wants to seal the record because he doesn't want this guy to find a jailhouse lawyer that's going to try to overturn it and play games. And they didn't do that here. So I would wonder. I mean, sometimes
0: saying yes to a judge in a situation like that doesn't necessarily mean it's an emphatic yes in the legal standard for a plea or something of this nature has to be a, a, an agreement that you're fully giving yourself up to the law.
6: And again, I'm going to question this court and question this judge. I think this judge had to do it, go a step further to make sure that he sealed the record, that he made sure that he was knowing what he was doing, and this is something he wanted to do of his own free will. He didn't lock that in. So, I mean, again, the door is open for an appeal.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that we all do as well. So we'll see what happens as that case moves into the appeals court. Thanks for joining us here on The Debrief tonight. Our live trial coverage resuming tomorrow at 9. And the debrief back live at 5 o'clock.